0: Let's turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at just a few verses there, verses 14 through 16. Let me go ahead and read those verses together. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So that verse 16, we'll talk more about it in just a moment. That's uh, one of the the earliest Christian songs that that we have. It's here in Scripture. It was a hymn that they would sing. No doubt it's probably just a portion of that. But Paul, as he was writing Ephesians, probably as he was writing about the church, he began to hum in his mind and in his heart this song that was common in the churches, and he included it in Scripture. As we continue our study here, we're looking at the church, and Paul makes it really clear that he's writing so that the church can know how to conduct herself. Last week we studied about how uh, the elders, what kind of elders do you have? What's the character, what's the makeup of the man who's an elder or a deacon? And what should their wives be like? The emphasis in Scripture is upon the character of the leader. And this can never be overstated, and it should never be forgotten. And when it is forgotten by an individual or even by the church, and winks and nods are made for misconduct and for unrighteous living, the church suffers, and the people of God are hurt by this as Paul's talking, writing there to Ephesus about the church, he breaks out into these last verses that shows the great faith that we have. And that is the title of this morning's study is Our Great Faith. He begins by talking to them in verse 14 about the travel plans. As you can imagine, I mean, even in the best of times, even in, you know, uh, modern age like ours where travel has never been easier, it's still difficult. You can make plans and you have to change them. And this is something that Paul had to deal with. Many times he wanted to show up in a place, but he couldn't come because there was difficulties in the the travels or in his health or another crisis had come up. He had good intentions to show up, but he understands that this may not happen. And that becomes very clear as he writes in verse 15 he says but if i am delayed and that conditional statement right there the word if it's a there's all kinds of conditional clauses and statements in the greek language this is a conditional clause of probability so what he's saying is i really want to come to you but i'm probably not going to be able to come my heart is to be with you but if i am delayed and i'm probably going to be delayed in getting to you i want to write to you I want to put something down on paper so that you have it in your possession to read and to study and to know. As this would have come to Timothy, Timothy would have then read it to the church. They would have gathered together in whatever that meeting place was, and they would have saw Timothy open up that, you know, parchment and begin to read. Now Paul has written these things so that we might know how to conduct ourselves in the church. Here's the great takeaway point. God has a way in which He wants His church to function and to behave herself. The priorities that she should have. The church is not a vehicle for men and women to accomplish their specific goals. Listen, it is not a place for social goals to be accomplished. The church is a place for the Lord to accomplish His goals. The Word of God tells us how the church should conduct herself in the manner that the Lord. Now, I don't don't really want to get off into this. I just want to make this a simple point. You know, there are church councils that get together, and they function as courts of sorts. And they read the Word of God, the clear statements of the truth about a person being married to, to one person, about there being sexual purity, and they will get together, and these councils, these church courts, they will read it, they will evaluate it, and then they will vote on it to determine in this day whether or not we really should continue to conduct ourselves in the same manner that's been handed down to us through the Scriptures. They have no authority. They have no place. They have no right to tamper with that which is not theirs make it very clear. The church is not ours. This is not our institution. This is not our resource center to do what we want. We have one simple commandment, and that is to obey the Lord and to fulfill those purposes. And so there in verse 15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of, not yours, in the house of God. The church Is the Lord's house. It's his family. And he's the one that is head over the church. Paul doubles down in this statement. And he says, the house of God is the church of the living God. (laughs) And it brings a weight of, of sobriety to the church. This is not ours. It's the church of the living God. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. We're none of those things we are finite. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't control the affairs in the next 10 minutes. And we have no right. And it's nothing but pure arrogance and pride for man to stand back, look at the word of God and say, yeah, I know it says that, but you know what I think? I think this. So we vote and we overrule God. But it's the church of the living God. It's His. And what else does he say about the church of the living God? He says that it is the pillar and the ground of truth. The pillar and the ground of truth. The church is not, again, a group of people that are just trying to figure things out as they go. The church is a place. And it's an institution whom the Lord has entrusted His truth to. We have a great faith. Our faith is based upon belief. And this belief has been given to us by the Lord. The church is to uphold this truth, to walk in this truth. And, uh, and as we're going to read here in just a moment, to dispense this truth, to communicate it, to get it out in as many ways, in as many forums as we possibly can. You know, when we moved here um, 25 years ago, over the years, there have been times where we've thought about, should we do the radio? Should we try TV? Should we do this? Should we do that? And there was a time when we were contemplating one of those ventures. And um, Rebecca and myself, uh, my wife, we were were talking and praying about this. And she just said something that was so right. She says, you know what? We came here to love this town to preach the Word, and whatever opportunity we have to do, we need to go for it. Every opportunity we have to get the Word of God out into the community and to love people with the love of Jesus, we need to walk through those opportunities. And you know, that's the same for your household. Every opportunity you have to press the truth of of God's Word, we are the pillar and the ground We're the foundation. In our society, it's shifting sand. I mean, we don't even know if we believe in truth anymore as a society. But that's never been a question in the heart and the mind of God. God is very clear in what he believes. And he wants us to be and we are that pillar and ground of truth. Now, this is not a time for us to pat ourselves on the back and to think we're greater than some other group. It's not about us. It's about God. And it's about the truth that he's passed on to us. And it's about our responsibility to restate what he has already stated. It's not ours. It's the Lord's. Do you remember when that young prophet was at the prophet school and they're on a building expansion program? And he borrowed an axe to go out in the woods and chop down a tree. And while he was chopping down the trees to, you know, to, for their building project, the axe head fell off, went into the water, I was a prized possession in those days. You didn't just go get one of those. And he was panicked over it. And he was worried over it. And he says to the prophet, he goes, I've lost my, the axe head. And he says, alas, <laughs> oh no, for it was borrowed. You know that statement, for it is borrowed, that is true for the church of Jesus Christ. We have nothing that is ours. Everything we have as the church is the Lord's. It is all borrowed. So there, this is not a, a moment for us to, to feel like we're greater than some other group because we have you know discovered the truth and they have not. No, this is just simply acknowledging the truth that we have been given and it is not ours. Alas, it is borrowed. God forbid that we should ever lose the truth. But church history tells us there are times when the truth is lost by the church. There are those times when the Word of God was no longer in the language of the people. They couldn't read it. They couldn't pick up their Bibles and, and read it. I mean, of course, into the modern printing press, nobody had one of these at home anyway. But they didn't know it. They couldn't even recite it because in their mind and in um, and, and their heart, it had it was gone from them. So you see, We need to preserve what is ours. God raised up men like John um, uh, Huss and and Wycliffe and and, uh, Luther to rediscover the Word of God, to get it in their language so that they could know it, they they could teach it, they could have it. It's ours. We have possession of it. We have more access to it than ever before. But you know, I do believe that there is a a crisis of priority of the church in America when it comes to this truth, to us being the pillar and ground of truth. Because, you know, a lot of people want to push back on us because we say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father except through him. To make declarative, dogmatic statements, not with an attitude of uh, arrogance, but with an attitude of confidence and thankfulness That this is what the Word of God says, therefore it is true. And the world pushes back and we can begin to feel like, well, I don't want to overstate these things. You can't overstate them. You cannot overstate the truth of the Word of God. Your attitude can be wrong, but if it's the truth, it's the truth. And we need to be bold in this statement. Several years ago, a, a, a survey was done by Barna. And what they found out, that Bible reading by Christians was at an all-time low. And that belief in the inspired Word of God among mainline denominational pastors was at an all-time low in America. So here we are some, I think that was a, a study that was done some 20 years ago. So is it any surprise that we find ourselves where we are? So what's the point I'm trying to make? You and me and us, we have been entrusted with the the truth, the pillar, the ground, the foundation of truth. It's in our hands. And the truth is all centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Isn't this what Jesus said? He goes, you search the law and the prophets, you search the scriptures, but they testify of who? They testify of me. The scriptures are all, from Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, they are all about Jesus. And as we move on in our study here, we look at verse 16. Where it, what's this statement? What's the connection from being the pillar and the ground of truth to then six statements about the person and the work of Jesus Christ? It's obvious. We're the pillar and ground of truth, and the truth that we deal with is the truth of Jesus Christ. That is the primary. That's not the only, but that is the primary truth that we deal with. And he then quotes and, and recites from this old te- uh, this uh, early church hymn. And in this, there's a definite and distinct pattern. Um, most of you probably have it laid out. If you look in the scriptures, um, you're going to see that there are six lines. Um, the first line begins with God, then justified, then seen, then preached then received, then believed, and then received, those six lines. And each of those lines one, four, and five, um, they're all dealing with the, he- the earthly realm. So here's the kind of the uh, artistic part of this hymn. Um, verse uh, l- Lines two, three, and six of this hymn, they all are dealing with the heavenly. And so he wrote, it was written this way to just talk about heaven's perspective of Jesus and to talk about an earthly perspective of Jesus. And so the way it goes is the first line one it deals with the earthly realm. Line two deals with the heavenly realm. Line three, it's the heavenly realm. He switches it. Then it's back to the earthly. Then line five is earthly again, and then it's heavenly. And so you have this very uh, clear pattern. The way is written, the types of verbs. are all passive verbs um, that are written in a way that would have had a, uh, a clear, poetic emphasis. We kind of lose it in the English, but it's, it's there in the Greek. Hymns and songs and choruses, they've always been an important part of the people of God, not just the church. You have the Psalms. What are the Psalms? It's a Hebrew hymnal. And in that hymnal, there is a profound truth There is theological doctrine that is all throughout. There's prophecy. There's prayers. There's the heartache and the cry of men um, in their circumstances. Praise the Lord for theologically sound music that's out there. And there's a ton of it. But there's a lot of stuff that's no good. And and so, um, you know, one thing that our worship team, we, we talk about this a lot. We really try to make certain that when we are singing songs, that they are 100 percent theologically sound. And so, there's a lot that are good that we don't sing because it's just not the best that's out there. You've got to be discerning. Not every group that you know is writing worship music um, should be followed in everything they have to say and do. <laughs> um, there are some songs that are great. And there are other songs that are like, yeah, I don't think so. We, we must be discerning when we talk about this thing with, with music that it is theologically deep and sound. But let's look at this, this line that he says, first of all, he says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Another way to say this is to, um, is to say that this is an affirmed way. This is, we know this to be true. So what's being said is, what we believe, this pillar and ground of truth, it's undisputed. So we're the pillar and ground of truth and great is the mystery of, godly, of, of godliness or, or religion or faith. The mystery of our faith is great. That's what's being communicated here in this statement. Now, remember this, cross-reference back to an earlier time in ministry at Ephesus. Ephesus. Let's travel back into the book of Acts for a couple of minutes here. Acts chapter 19. Paul's been ministering there in Ephesus. And there's so many people getting saved that the idol makers are beginning to lose revenue. People aren't buying their idols of Diana anymore. The goddess of Diana, the fertility goddess. Their pocketbooks are being hurt and being felt. And so a riot breaks out. They apprehend Paul. They're ready to tear him to pieces. And they're furious, and the whole town gets caught up in this uproar. In Acts 19, verse 34, we read, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, they made this statement. Look at verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery being a truth that was previously unknown, not an enigma, not a secret. Mystery in the New Testament means something that was previously unknown. So this this truth that's been manifested to us, this is great. I wonder if Paul, when he said great is the mystery of godliness, didn't hearken back to that day when he had been dragged through the streets of Ephesus, had been roughed up, and for two hours, for two hours, at the top of their lungs, he heard this crowd chant, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so he writes, our faith is great. Is it, is, it, is Paul kind of sticking it to them a little bit? I think maybe he is. I can't prove that. But I would imagine anybody that was there on that, in, at the church at Ephesus on the day, that they were dragged into the court, and for two hours they chanted this. When he said, great as the mystery of our godliness, they hearkened back to that day. I just want to remind you, I don't think you need the reminder, but let me just state it. Our faith is great. Our faith is, is the greatest truth that's been revealed to mankind on planet earth. And what is The greatness of this faith it's it's jesus and so there are those six points number one god was manifested in the flesh god was manifested in the flesh we think of the incarnation of jesus christ john chapter one verse one tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and god with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god he took on flesh verse 14 says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us The eternal Christ came and took on a human body there in Bethlehem. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 5 through 8, when he talks about Jesus coming in the likeness of men. Or 1 John 3, 5. He was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. He was manifested. God was manifested for a specific purpose, and that is to take away our sin. So that's the earthly realm. He was manifested in the flesh. Then it goes to the heavenly realm. He was justified in the spirit. This is a reference to the times in which the spirit acknowledged the greatness of Jesus. We can think about this at his baptism. First John, I mean, say John chapter one, verses thirty-two and thirty-three, where the spirit came descending upon Jesus at the baptism. Or how about this? Romans one three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. He came in the incarnation in the flesh. He was justified by the Spirit. That is, he was raised from the dead. The next realm, uh, the next line takes us into the heavenly realm he was seen by angels now people can make way too much about angels right and people want to almost worship angels angels never receive worship but angels are those messengers that god has chosen and they are uniquely spiritual and i think part of the idea here is listen our great faith we have god who's come in the flesh we have the spirit of god who raised that one who came in the flesh but there's also the ministry of angels surrounding this great faith that we have. And you can think of the different ways. Angels were there at, the, at his birth announcement. They were there with him in the wilderness. They were there with him during his suffering. And the angels came to strengthen him. In Luke 22, verse 43, And at his resurrection, the angels, they made the declaration. It's not that he's trying to esteem angels. He's just saying this is, not purely a, this is not simply and purely a physical thing that men have made. The spiritual realm has been involved in this great faith of ours. And then we go back to the earthly realm. It says that he was preached among the Gentiles. To the Jews was committed the oracles of God. And they were to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And now that was happening. Paul, being a Jew, was one that was taking the light of the gospel into the world. But it wasn't just him. It was all. And now Gentiles were being brought in. And they were believing. They were being preached. And again, we stay on the earthly realm in that next next line. And we read that he was believed on in the world. It wasn't just preaching that was happening. The declaring of the truth of Jesus Christ, there was also belief that was taking place. And this, listen, the early church, we we hear the emphasis. They were about preaching the gospel. How important was it for them to preach the gospel? It was so important for them to preach the gospel that they included in it as a point of praise and their hymns. It was valued by them that the gospel would be preached But it was also not just a simple task of preaching. They also rejoiced that people were believing. And let me just say, may we never lose the priority, the primacy of preaching the gospel and seeing men and women get saved, not just in our town, but around the world. God help us if we ever lose sight of that. We must do a a better job. We must press harder and reach further with the preaching and with the, the seeing people from around the world put their faith and trust in the Lord. We go back to the heavenly realm in line five, I mean, sorry, line six, and that he was received up into glory. We think of his ascension. We think of him going back to the Father. And what is Jesus doing right now as the ascended Lord? He ever lives to make intercession for you. So you see, we're the pillar and ground of truth. And then there are six statements about the greatness of the truth. Who is the truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. That point of emphasis. But you know, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels said, why are you staring into heaven? He's going to come back again. So as we think about the Lord ascending, the mind, the biblically trained mind can help about thinking about the one who has ascended returning again. And he is going to come back. You know, as I close here, I, pr- I prayed in the opening that we would see the greatness of the church. We called the study Our Great Faith and how we should conduct ourselves, that we've been given truth. We're not winging it. We're not trying to figure this out as we go. We've got the Word of God. It's been with us for 2,000 years. The church is unlike any other institution. The word church, ecclesia, means called out ones, gathered together ones. That's kind of an interesting thing right now, isn't it? The called out ones, the ones that gather together cannot gather together. We're doing the best we can. And listen... I don't believe, okay, I don't believe that what has happened for the last, I don't even know how long it's been, too long, weeks that we've not been able to gather together, I don't believe this has been an outright attack against the church of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that's the focus of our government. I don't believe that's what our governor was trying to do. However, there are unintended consequences that often come when men make decisions I'm not saying we are there yet, but let's not be naive. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual hosts of wickedness. I pray that tomorrow when our governor makes his statement about the way which we're going to start to come back together, that it begins to open things up. Let me just say this. And many of you have written to me and you've called me about what we're going to do, you know, under these circumstances. And many of you feel like we've already crossed that line and that we should have never stopped meeting. And I respect that. And if you could be a part of some private conversations, you would have heard many of my feelings about things um, and wondering about it. And I, I don't think that we are at that place. But let me just say this clearly, and emphatically. If our government would ever cease, whether wittingly or unwittingly, to stop the work of Jesus Christ, if every group gets to meet, if all the other businesses open up and the church does not, I guarantee you it'll be at that time that we will say, like Peter and John said on the day that political group of the Jews said, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus anymore, I promise you, that we will say, we cannot listen to man more than God. We will meet, and we'll do that. So there's no question about that. I agree with you. I've got my horn. I'm honking too. But I I just, I personally, the leadership doesn't feel like we're at that point at this moment. But hey, listen, Governor Northam, if you're listening, the churches in Virginia that we want to meet. We want to get back together, and it's our responsibility to make sure that we're walking out our faith in the way that the Word of God has told us to do that. So we pray for you, and we pray that you make right and wise decisions, and the men and women that are around you, we thank you that you wanted to protect us. We thank you that you were there for the concern of the health. We have obeyed. We have followed what you've wanted because We do believe you had the best interest of this state in mind. But we ask you to make certain that you do not cross that line and begin to infringe upon the rights of the church to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and gather together. I understand that we're probably going to see a a phase-in process, and I'm willing to walk through that. But again, let me just say, in case any of you are wondering, if they get to the place where they say, well, we just don't think churches can meet for the next year. Um, well, you can start picturing me in an orange jumpsuit because that's probably what's going to happen. We're not going to just not meet. We will meet. I don't know exactly. So the horns, is that like, yeah, send them to jail? Or is that like, no, we agree with you. I don't know how you're feeling right there. But anyway. <laughs> so listen. We don't want to pick a fight. We're not trying to be difficult, but the church is a church of the living God. And we have the Word of God that tells us how to conduct ourselves. These are unprecedented times. We have followed. We have obeyed. We're willing to walk this out and through a process of coming back together. But just so you know, because I know many of you have been writing and asking, If they tell us we can't, mean, no, we're we're not going to just obey that, nor will any church. Church, Very few would. So I think that we're going to be fine. I really do believe we're going to be fine. I believe we're going to see ourselves come back together, and we're going to be able to rejoice. But I pray that what we learn through all of this is the value of our great faith and us, the church, that are the pillar and the ground of truth. To fulfill not just our social needs of gathering together, but to fulfill the Word of God and why we've been brought together in the first place. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your truth that you have given to us. A truth, Lord, that is unlike any other. It is completely heavenly. And this completely heavenly truth has been revealed to earth. And we rejoice in it that you sent your son. Lord, we pray that we would walk wisely in these days. We do pray for our governor, our president, other official leaders, church leaders, Lord, that we'd have your wisdom We would have your boldness. So we pray, Lord, that you would stay the plague. We thank you, Lord, for the way it has began to go down. We thank you, Lord, for the way that has been kept from being the, the terrible disaster that was feared. We want to thank you for that, Lord. And we pray for the comfort for those families that have felt death and sickness. It can't get any worse for them. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace to be upon them as they mourn and as they walk through these days. But, Lord, for us, the church of Jesus Christ, the purposes that you have, may we walk in them, may we obey you, may we be all about the priorities of preaching to the Gentiles and seeing people in the world be saved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.